0: the rhetoric that we're seeing that really vilifies trans people is um, on the up and up and we're seeing it as a targeted political strategy.
1: Coming up on Carolina Connection, students react to a new North Carolina law that restricts gender affirming care. Good morning, I'm Savannah Gunter.
2: And I'm Henry Taylor. Also this week, North Carolina's house speaker says UNC's campus should no longer be a gun-free zone. U.S. News ranks UNC the fourth best public university in the country. UNC's newest art installation helps add color to a parking deck. And screenwriting students mark the end of the Hollywood writers' strike.
3: If you talk to writers, especially TV writers in LA, they will tell you that this was essentially like an existential moment for screenwriting.
1: From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection.
2: Thanks for joining us. We begin this week with a controversial new state law. North Carolina is now the 22nd state to ban transgender minors from receiving gender-affirming care. Supporters say the law will protect young people, but opponents call it discriminatory and dangerous. Lauren Zola reports.
4: Growing up in Winston-Salem, Kathleen Josie Collins realized she was a transgender woman at 18 years old. After discovering this part of her identity, Collins decided to start HRT, or hormone replacement therapy. Collins said gender dysphoria negatively impacted her mental health.
5: Dysphoria, it's not something cis people can really understand. It, it eats at you. I don't think I felt any emotional pain like it. Despite
4: her experience with gender dysphoria, Collins says her HRT treatment has improved her mental health.
5: I'm starting to feel like me, finally. Like, this is how I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to look how my body is supposed to be shaped, you know? It feels right. Collins'
4: HRT is still allowed to continue since she is over the age of 18. Despite this, she said she feels angry that the North Carolina State Legislature has passed a new law banning gender transition care for people under 18.
5: GOP lawmakers across the country have been systematically working to strip me and everyone like me of our rights, to stamp out our very existence.
4: The law passed the state House and Senate almost on a party-line vote, with Republicans in favor and Democrats opposed. Legislators also overrode a veto from Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. One of the primary sponsors, Republican Wilson County Representative Ken Fontenot, said doctors sometimes gain from allowing minors to transition. One of the
6: reasons I was a big uh, proponent of gender reassignment restrictions is because what's happening is... In my opinion, because of the financial payout on the insurance side, doctors are running headlong into offering this without telling kids what are the real ramifications and that it's not reversible.
4: Fontenot says one thing that motivated him to introduce the legislation was a story he read in a publication called The Free Press. A staff member at a Washington University-affiliated clinic in St. Louis said doctors did not adequately screen adolescents seeking gender-affirming care. The university has denied the allegations, but the New York Times concluded that while some of the charges could not be confirmed, others were true. Fontenot says the staff member's allegations concerned him. Kids were getting puberty
6: blockers after a 30-minute consult, or getting uh, vaginoplasty after an hour on the phone with a doctor. Some
4: advocates for LGBTQ plus rights say the allegations from St. Louis don't represent what's happening elsewhere. Brennan Lewis is with Equality North Carolina.
1: Doctors
0: and medical professionals take an oath when they start that career journey to, like, protect and serve uh, folks in the community and act in the best interest of um, folks receiving care. And I don't think that folks are providing gender-affirming care to make money. I think they're
4: doing it to help kids. Lewis describes the new North Carolina law as a form of discrimination. The legislature also passed laws this year that ban transgender athletes from women's school sports and require teachers to alert parents if kids change pronouns at school. Lewis says they've heard from families of transgender adolescents under 10 years old, We're questioning whether they want to stay in North Carolina.
0: We've heard from several families who are planning to move out of state, um, which I think is really sad because we want all families to feel like they can see a future for themselves in North Carolina. But I think the rhetoric that we're seeing that really vilifies trans people is on the up and up, and we're seeing it as a targeted political strategy.
4: Kathleen Josie Collins is among the people considering leaving North Carolina. As an LGBTQ person, she says the new laws are affecting her mental health. And she disagrees with those who say doctors don't screen people before starting gender
5: affirming care. They make you jump through a ridiculous amount of hoops to get what you need. Always. Like you have to go to go to a therapist and they have to talk to you for a while and they throw all sorts of curveballs at you to try to disprove that you're really trans.
4: Collins adds that as much as she hates the challenges and oppression that come with being transgender, she wouldn't change anything about her identity. She says for her. Gender affirming care is life saving. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lauren Zola.
1: Now, on to another political debate related to the gun violence on UNC's campus this semester. After the killing of Professor Cijay Yen and a second lockdown 16 days later, UNC students are calling for gun restrictions. But North Carolina Speaker of the House Tim Moore has a different idea. Anthony DeHart has more.
7: After students from young Democrats, students demand action and march for our lives demonstrated at the legislative building two weeks ago, Republican House Speaker Tim Moore voiced his opposition to gun control legislation and went a step further by suggesting that UNC would be safer if students and other people could carry guns on campus. And I have a son who's a student at UNC Chapel Hill, so this is very personal. A uh, couple couple questions about that. One, of course, is, is that the campus is a gun-free zone. And so, a number of students have said, why do they have to be unarmed when, there may be, when, when there's clearly a way that bad guys can get on the campus? So, so you know, it's, it's a gun-free zone and that clearly is not working. North Carolina is one of 17 states that prohibit guns on college campuses altogether. Moore would like to change that. He says more guns on campus would make students feel safer. You're not just gonna snap your fingers and get rid of guns, that's not reality. Criminals are gonna have guns. Uh, and the best the best deterrent against a criminal with a
8: gun is a good guy with a gun
7: for some students on campus that argument doesn't hold much weight Samad Rangunwala is a public policy student at UNC and an opinion writer for the Daily Tar Heel he wrote about Moore's remarks
5: anybody with an ounce of sense can immediately think through what more guns during like an active shooter situation on campus or like somebody pulling a handgun out on campus would immediately do. I haven't had anybody be able to tell me like how a good guy with a gun actually works.
7: Rangunwala says that more guns won't
5: help. In a situation like that where nobody knows what's happening, nobody knows who's the who's the suspect is, nobody knows who's like a bad guy with a gun versus a good guy with a gun, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to have more people getting killed and more people getting hurt. Um, in like the crossfire
7: on friday september 15th students demand action organized a walkout from classes centered around healing from the two lockdowns kyle lumsden the president says they'd like to see change that reduces gun violence
9: we're calling on you know the general assembly to prioritize this issue in this upcoming session and to really start working on finding ways to create more safety in, in the community um, and, and make it in, in many ways Uh, harder for someone to get a gun than it is to to vote right.
7: It's no secret that in North Carolina fighting for gun control legislation is an uphill battle. State Republicans hold a veto-proof majority in the legislature and used it earlier this year to do away with mandatory pistol permits. Lumsden notes that there are also steps that the university can take immediately. Students Demand Action is calling for leaders at UNC Chapel Hill to stop investing endowment funds in firearm related investments and to declare that they will not make these kind of investments in the future.
9: Part of Students Demand Action's mission is really to focus on again colleges and universities and divestment is one of the big things that we're really trying to focus on. And so we currently have a divestment campaign um, really asking the board of trustees and board of investors to either declare that they are not investing in the gun industry um, or of course divest in the gun industry if they are. Unfortunately, a lot of colleges and universities have a stake in this killer business.
7: Endowment investments can often be a tangled web of different investment vehicles, and it's not clear whether or not UNC's endowment is invested in the gun industry or not. For students like Rangunwala, the message is clear. They want leaders to prioritize safety over politics. He says some politicians are more interested in protecting the Second Amendment than the nearly 50,000 lives lost each year to gun violence.
5: They've made their choice. Like, this is a trade-off they're willing to deal with.
7: In Chapel Hill, I'm Anthony DeHart. UNC Police Chief Brian James
2: provided new insight into the shooting and the lockdowns at the UNC Board of Trustees meeting this week. Caroline Horn has that story.
3: Following August 28th, the UNC Police Department has received praise and criticism for their response to the crisis and providing public information. Brian James gave an overview of the Police Department's chain of action on that day. He said that the department constantly prepares for events, and that they had a plan in place, despite many criticizing the department for lack of organization. In 2021, a law was mandated in North Carolina that required every law enforcement officer to take a course in responding to school shooting incidents, as well as an emergency operations plan refresher and active shooter response firearm training in 2022. This past summer, the department participated in a rapid deployment refresher with UNC hospital police, using an empty academic building to simulate an active shooter situation.
8: I want to emphasize that UNC officers responded very quickly, as did our fellow law enforcement partners, and entered the buildings uh, as we had trained.
3: James also said that the department was able to arrive at the site three minutes after the initial 911 call, and he commended the 911 staff, which dispatched the officers as well as received and processed additional information during the lockdown. Chancellor Kevin Guskowitz also offered his gratitude to the UNC Police Department and other emergency response departments which aided the police officers.
8: It, it takes a village, and so we, uh, we're, we're gonna continue to get better. As I said, there's no perfect uh, response, uh, but uh, we will work toward, toward perfect, so thank you.
3: The board and department did discuss areas of needed improvement, including many officers not knowing their way around campus.
8: One thing I can say about Carolina, uh, having been here a year now, uh, when you get here, it's like a maze. And if you don't know it, you just don't know it. And so we want to do everything we can to familiarize our partners with the campus. Because as you can imagine, as we have so much help coming in and trying to direct people where to go, uh, that can be uh, very challenging.
3: Law enforcement officers have requested an exercise to help them better familiarize themselves with the campus. UNC junior Gabby Gazore said that while the police staff did the best they could amidst the crisis, The staff should have been trained on how to get around on campus before the shooting.
10: So it's a very important issue, especially since these police officers, whether they're Chapel Hill police or our actual campus police, um, being able in times of crises like that to know their way around our campus is very important because how are they going to best serve us as students in a time of need when they don't even know their way around where the students are?
3: More cameras and license plate readers will also be integrated into campus to help create what James called a real-time environment, to keep campus more secure in both critical incidents and daily operations. In Chapel Hill, I'm Caroline Horn. U.S. News and World Report recently
1: released its annual ranking of universities. UNC is fourth among public universities and 22nd overall. Last year, UNC was fifth and 29th. With more on what the ranking means to UNC students and faculty, here's Carolina Connection's Sophia Cassini.
10: Despite U.S. News & World Report being a private media company, seemingly far removed from the higher education system, its annual ranking of universities impacts applicants, students, and faculty members. Some students, like Senior Belila Azam, a double major in biology and business, say that UNC ranking fourth for public universities reflects the quality of his education, but not his experience at UNC as a whole.
6: Yeah, I think that's just a flaw that we have right now, Um, especially in the metrics and like what defines a good institution. Is it just like how prestigious it is or how old it is, or is it how the students feel attending there?
10: The US News ranking came out shortly after UNC's second lockdown.
6: I think it's ironic that we ranked top five institutions right after there were two, you know, um, really, really stressful and threatening you know, events that happen on campus. Um, it's definitely, walking around campus, I, I see that not everyone is, is doing great and is, is in a great, like, mental place. But at the same time, UNC Chapel Hill is ranking top five, so that, there's definitely a disconnect there that needs to be evaluated in terms of mental health.
10: U.S. News uses more than a dozen metrics in its rankings, including graduation rates, borrow debt, and a national survey of college administrators. UNC Chapel Hill Board of Trustees member Jen Halsey-Evans says the board is happy to see UNC doing well in the ranking, but she says the next goal is climbing to number one, jumping ahead of University of California, Berkeley, UCLA, and the University of Michigan.
7: All three of those schools have endowments that are approximately three times larger than ours. So to think about what the University of North Carolina has been able to do with our endowment as a public university, accessible to all, with the lowest tuition of any of those peers, it's really remarkable. But Evans agrees there are aspects to college life that are also
10: important, like student happiness and well-being.
7: Rankings are important. I mean, people look at rankings. We absolutely, as I've said, want to be number one. um, But I think we care deeply about all the other metrics, and and really a student's day-to-day experience is paramount.
10: Professors witness the student experience and the administrative decisions, giving them a unique outlook on the institutions they teach at. Assistant philosophy professor Daniel Munoz says the annual ranking should not be a deciding factor for administrative decisions, or for students deciding where to apply for college.
6: It's nice news, but I don't put that much stock in the U.S. news rankings. They used to be worse than useless since they relied on unreliable data. Uh, they seem to have tweaked their formula for, the, for this year, but still, I'm skeptical.
10: Some institutions, like Colorado College, have decided to not submit data to U.S. News and World Report because they view the ranking system as flawed and conflicting with their academic objectives.
6: I don't think UNC should focus on high rankings as a goal. Everybody else is trying to game the system. I, I think that it's much more important to focus on giving a high-quality education. The word gets out to college counselors. The word gets out to students. Uh, chasing after rankings is not the way to go. But. You know, I wouldn't blame UNC if they had a little toast for their rise in the rankings.
10: A recent study by Art and Science Group, a higher education consultant, found that 58% of high school seniors have considered rankings when exploring colleges. And the U.S. News ranking is the most influential. In Chapel Hill, this is Sophia Cazzini.
1: You're listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student-produced newscast. I'm Savannah Gunter.
2: And I'm Henry Taylor. UNC's Craig Parking Deck just got a little more colorful with the addition of a large-scale mixed-media installation called Drawn to Explain by artist Amalia Pica. The London-based artist is famous for her sculptures and installations. Here with us today to talk about the work is Peter Nisbet, He's the Deputy Director for Curatorial Affairs at the Ackland Art Museum. Thanks for joining us.
8: Happy to be here.
2: So firstly, why Craig Parking Deck?
8: Well, I was not part of that decision, but as I understand it, early on, uh, after the expansion of the deck, uh, there was a decision to be made about the facade of the deck, whether to spend money on a on cladding, or would there be another answer that would be more interesting for the community and for our commitment to art, then that was the time the decision was made to do a commission of an artist.
2: Yeah. So uh, Amalia Pika is the artist featured. Uh, What was the process like of finding her?
8: Well, there was a committee, as you can imagine. There are always committees. And there was an open call. We got applications in, two or three artists came to campus, made proposals, and out of that process, Amalia was chosen.
2: So uh, looking at the interpretation, um, to the best way you could explain it, uh, what is the message behind this installation?
8: <laughs> well, art is notorious for not having a message. In fact, some people would say that is the point of art, that there's not one message um, behind it. But I do think it invites um, the viewers to enjoy the multiplicity of, of, of these diagrams, their colors, shapes, and scales, just as a, a, a as a very powerfully decorative element on the facade. But then also one recognizes certain diagrams. They look like science diagrams or sports diagrams or whatever it may be, political science diagrams. And then to delve a bit more deeply into what is the relationship of this diagram to knowledge. Um, You'll notice that she stripped away all the texts off the diagrams. There's no um, A axis or B axis, X or Y axis. There's a lot of the contextual information is stripped away so they've become almost in one way pure shapes, in another way they are the sort of most abstract representation of, of these particular diagrams. And I think the message is bringing them all together to celebrate the range of inquiry at the university and the, and the powerful central role of the visual in that inquiry.
2: So uh, what sort of process went into deciding what symbols uh, Amalia ended up using in the installation?
8: Um, she, through contacts, got a list of names of professors to talk to. She went and spoke to, I think, over 50, uh, mainly faculty, some graduate students and undergraduates, about uh, you know, what other symbols they use in their teaching, what diagrams do they use, which she then whittled down, according to her own criteria, which I'm sure were based partly in a nice spread of different different disciplines, but also the visual qualities, the scale, the demands of the site, and came up with what we have now.
2: Peter Nisbet, thank you so much for coming on the show.
8: Happy to be here.
2: On Wednesday, the Writers Guild for America, or WGA, reached a tentative agreement to end its 148-day strike. The strike halted film production and distribution across the country. Some UNC students and faculty were affected by the shutdown. Carolina Connections' Samantha Hoffman reports. LA is a
9: union town.
0: On May 2nd, 98% of WGA's nearly 12,000 members voted to strike to raise pay and protect themselves from generative AI and the changing streaming landscape. UNC senior Haley Van Ray joined the pickets in LA this summer and said there was a positive
1: feeling of community. You know, there's all kinds of people out there. We were striking outside like studios, so I went outside Netflix and Warner Bros and Paramount, making some noise. They could hear us inside at some of the places, and you would hear cars honking in support so that it would also, you know, make a, make a statement to the execs that are inside.
0: Van Ray was participating in the UNC Hollywood internship program a program launching students to entertainment careers. Van Ray is an aspiring screenwriter and said she had work experiences cut down in length and content due to the strike. There wasn't enough work for interns.
1: I mean, it's already hard in general to find the types of jobs that I would like ideally, and being in North Carolina, that's reduced even more. And then with the strike, that like limits things to another level.
0: Joy Goodwin, the director of the Writing for Screen and Stage program at UNC, says from her own experience in Hollywood, she saw a strike coming.
3: And if you talk to writers, especially TV writers in LA, they will tell you that this was essentially like an existential moment for screenwriting, that if they didn't stand firm and try to get better contracts, it was going to become financially impossible to remain a screenwriter.
0: Goodwin added that though the decision to strike was nearly unanimous for writers on the Guild, independent filmmakers and crew were sacrificed. All the
3: crew has had to stop working because the writers and actors have been on strike. So there is disagreement, I would say, among people about whether this long strike was ultimately worth it. On September 27th, WGA reached
0: a tentative agreement with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers that raises writer compensation, requires studios to disclose use of generative AI and increases the required number of employees in writer's rooms. While members still have to ratify it, WGA is optimistic. Part of the deal increases the required number of writers per series to address concerns about writers overworking or being easily replaced. UNC screenwriting professor Michael Acosta, who was working on a film when strikes began, says though that's legitimate, the solution should be dependent on individual studios' needs.
7: As a showrunner, I would want the option to have the size of the room that I want. And, you know, what does the show need?
0: The entertainment industry has seen an influx of content due to the rise of streaming services. However, this has also brought wage deflation and lower residuals from streaming than cable programming. Writers are getting paid less per job due to shorter seasons and aren't sharing as much profit, even if their show dominates the service.
7: No one knows where the money is. Somebody has it. There's money being generated, and why isn't it being cut up fairly?
0: While student Van Ray feels more motivated about her career in screenwriting as a financially viable opportunity, and many jobs are now protected from AI generation, Acosta says the increase in wages and requirements may exclude new writers rather than introduce them.
7: So what I think they'll probably do is give the concessions to the WGA and then they'll just cut the amount of shows that they do. In aggregate, we may lose writer positions because of that, which sucks.
0: The Screen Actors Guild SAG-AFTRA is still on strike and will resume negotiations Monday, October 2nd. In Chapel Hill, I'm Samantha Hoffman.
1: Now let's talk sports. Here with us is Carolina Connections' Kensley Browdy and The Daily Tar Heels Sports Managing Editor Lucas Tomei. Thanks for being here.
6: Yeah, thanks for having me.
10: This is the first time the UNC football team has been 4-0 since 1997. What are the key factors of this?
6: Yeah, so this UNC football team, this is a team that can make adjustments on the fly. Uh, they can both run the ball um, and also air it out through the air through their Heisman caliber quarterback, Drake May. They're not one-dimensional, there's not one receiver or one back that an opposing team can shut down and neutralize the Tar Heels' offense. Uh, And perhaps more importantly, the defense is held up this year. That unit is by no means great, but they've been much more effective at stopping opponents' momentum than they were last
9: year.
10: So going deeper into ACC play, having teams like Miami, Duke coming to us, and then traveling to Clemson and then to NC State... How does UNC football team manage to keep up this pace as they go deeper into the ACC play?
6: Yeah, so the defense needs to continue to be effective. Uh, I think you can see how that unit has gained confidence over the first four games of the season. The defensive line has improved, but we've also seen big gains in the secondary, which is sort of new for UNC in recent years, Uh, especially thanks to veteran transfers like Elijah Hussey and Amari Chapman.
10: So now turning to basketball. With the ACC schedules dropping for men's and women's, what games are going to be key wins for the Torhills this year? How do you think the Torhills establish credibility? And what quad one wins are each squad going to have to secure to get back to the NCAA and even make the NCAA this year?
6: Let's start with the men's team, who is coming off one of the most disappointing seasons ever in college basketball relative to expectations. I mean, never before had the preseason number one team not made the NCAA tournament. And they're, they're going to have to work hard to sort of earn that respect uh, back for this team. So they start off with a matchup against Florida State in Chapel Hill on December 2nd. They're going to want to, you know, look to get their foot in the door and, and win that one. But what I'm really looking at is um, those first three ACC games at the start of the new year. Pittsburgh on January 2nd, Clemson on January 6th, and NC State. On January tenth, those are all away games. Those are all quality ACC teams, and UNC in recent years has struggled to play good teams on the road. Um, so they're one want- they're going to want to get their momentum started with, you know, three big away victories against Pittsburgh, Clemson, and NC State to start the year. When it comes to the women, they've had a few seasons of, um, you know, more consistent success. What I have penciled in my calendar is UNC's two matchups against Virginia Tech uh, this upcoming season. The first one uh, on February 4th in Chapel Hill, the second one in Blacksburg later that month. Uh, Virginia Tech is a team that I think is going to be one of the favorites in the ACC. Liz Kitley, who's reigning ACC Player of the Year, is going to be really, really great, and they always bring it to UNC. I think those are going to be two uh, two huge matchups for the team this upcoming year.
1: That was Carolina Connections' Kensley Braddy and the Daily Tar Heels Sports Managing Editor Lucas Tomei. Thanks for joining us.
2: Finally, this week, you may not know it, but when you had your morning cup of coffee yesterday, you were helping celebrate National Coffee Day. In honor of the occasion, Carolina Connections' W.H. Hayes asked students about their favorite caffeinated beverage. Drink.
8: My
0: name is Nora O'Connell, and
1: my relationship to
0: National Coffee Day is that I am a barista at Meantime Coffee Shop. I love a classic latte. I think you definitely can't go wrong. We have really great quality espresso
6: here. My name is Grayson Buchanan. I did not know about National Coffee Day until just now. Uh, However, I do drink a lot of coffee, so, so, you know, it feels... feels good to you know, you know, be represented by, uh, by National Coffee Day. Uh, usually I just get like a double shot espresso because it's nice to have like a good like espresso, but yeah.
0: My name is Eliza Hart, and I didn't even know it was National Coffee Day, but I drink coffee every day, multiple times a day, so I feel like I'm, I've forgotten my best friend's birthday at this point. <laughs> I always stick with an Americano. On a day like this, I might go for a hot one, but usually I get an iced Americano with lavender syrup.
1: And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Kevin Paris. I'm Savannah Gunter.
2: And I'm Henry Taylor. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and X at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.